Okay, folks, welcome to the podcast. Back at San Luis Pass for the third annual now Flounder conversation with Kevin Burns and Wayne Pedigo. Guys, good morning. Good morning. Or almost well, it is afternoon. Good, good afternoon. Good morning, Jane. <laughs> Thanks for doing this again. Uh, this is my favorite subject. My favorite uh, podcast to record is, is coming out of here. So the first year we did it, I'm trying to think, we talked about tactics more than I think than anything. We did. Um, strategies you can use on the water. The second year, last year we did it, we brought in um, Reagan Marshall and Captain Mark, Captain Mark Seafood, and we talked about uh, a little bit what was going on with the fishery. You know, we got some perspective on what you were seeing, Wayne, and then what Reagan and Captain Mark were seeing. And um, we talked about the stock and the status of the stock. And so I uh, returned from Parks and Wildlife Commission meeting which was held uh, two weeks ago now in, in Austin, and Coastal Fisheries staff provided the commission with a, a summary of the stock. So real quick, I want to walk through kind of flounder biology life cycle, and you guys just jump at any point in time in this conversation, but we'll walk through uh, flounder life cycle and then talk about um, the status of the stock and where it's trending and then what's next because uh, some breaking news coming out. Uh, here pretty soon so uh flounder females live about seven years to eight years but uh average seven years life cycle it takes them about two years to get to where they can spawn for their sexual mature and then they can spawn at 14 inches about 50 percent of the female population has reached uh sexual maturity or 14 at 14 inches 50 percent of the population has reached sexual maturity females have reached sexual maturity at about 15 inches, that jumps up to around 90% are, are capable of releasing eggs. And then you move up from there, and almost 100% you know, of your females are, are sexually mature. So we have a bag limit, I mean a minimal size limit, excuse me, a minimal size limit at 14 inches currently, which ensures about 50% of the females out there are spawning. So the females, well, the males and the females migrate offshore. Males move first. We've talked about this in the past. There's evidence that suggests that the males don't come back in the spring, but the males move out first in autumn. Females follow shortly thereafter. And Wayne, you can maybe comment about the migration this year and, and what you've seen. But females have left and are leaving now. Um, it's November 15th at, at the time of this podcast. And they'll go offshore to spawn and um, eggs hatch out in the Gulf of Mexico. Takes about three weeks for that egg and larvae to uh, get to a point to where it's really tolerant of temperature changes. But for the first three to four weeks of its life, it is um, highly uh, intolerant of any, any temperature changes. They need about 18 degrees Celsius. So they need, they need to be in the mid-60s to upper 60s Fahrenheit to survive anything outside of that range. And you'll start to skew towards having more male population. And anything exceedingly far out of that range, and you'll have... They won't survive. You'll have, you'll have death. So, very tight tolerance on the temperatures for the eggs and the larvae for the first three weeks to a month of their life. Then after that, they're pretty tolerant. They come in shore. They come back into the bays in the spring. As they're going through metamorphosis, or just after they've gone through metamorphosis, where that eye, that eye migrates over to the left side of the body, they come back into the bays and estuaries, and they, they, they seek out marshes and go further and further into uh, fresher waters and then they'll follow bait for the rest of their 
uh, juvenile uh, life stages till they reach sexual maturity and, and they themselves go offshore. So that's kind of the life cycle. Now on the on the water temperature, when you're referring to that, is that the water offshore? That's water in the Gulf. Yes, that's okay. water offshore. And you've seen this backed up. I mean, the, the, these numbers, 18 degrees Celsius or 65 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit or so, that's that's backed up by research both by Parks and Wildlife and University of Texas Marine Science Institute. So that that early life stage is critical uh, to southern flounder survival and recruitment into the bays. So what we've seen is an inverse relationship with warmer winters, water temperatures in the Gulf, and larval recruitment following spring. The winters of 2015, 2016 were extremely warm. The following springs from both of those winters were the lowest recruitments that we've seen in uh, the bag sains that Parks and Wildlife conducts. The um, that recruitment it directly relates to um, adult fish two to three years later. So if you don't have the babies and the larvae come in, you're not going to have that year class to fish on two or three years later. So when you get two or three consecutive warm winters, you have two to three years of no recruitment into the bays or very little recruitment into the bays. You end up when you're fishing, you end up fishing off of one or two year classes that were successful. So let's look at the past few years. We had low recruitment in 2016 and 2017. We had high recruitment in 2018. We had low recruitment this past spring, 2019. So that's four years. We've had one successful year class in that four years. The fish live seven years, right? We discussed they live seven years old. It takes them two years to reach sexual maturity. So you have about five generations of flounder at any point in time that are moving offshore to go spawn. If you don't get consecutive back-to-back winters or two out of every three winters that are cold, you end up with very few fish remaining to contribute to the spawning biomass. So the last four years, we've had one cold winter. Now this year is looking decent so far. I mean, we've had a couple of pretty good cold snaps it's been in the upper 30s. I don't know about here, but I know inland a little bit. It's been in the upper 30s in the morning. I don't know what you're seeing out here. I know inshore water temperatures. I listen to the radio talk show every morning coming to work, and they were saying that the inshore water um, temperatures were around 53 degrees. So that's great for this time of the year. And if we can hold that, that's going to – it should – it should we should see decent recruitment, certainly higher than what we saw last year. This it's, next spring we should see some recruitment. It seemed like last year we had a fairly cool winter too, though. Um, comparative to 16 and 17. Yeah, well, it didn't, it wasn't cold enough or it it wasn't cold long enough, I guess. Yeah, I think one or two really quick blasts don't do you a whole lot of good. You need, like I said, that after they spawn, it's, it's a, it's a window of about three to four weeks that are, that are critical, not just, you know, a few days. So we might get hit with a, with a front, a really strong front for a few days, but that it needs to, we need to keep the Gulf temperatures down to the mid to upper 60s for extended periods of time. That's really what needs to happen. But if you're saying the bay temperatures are in the upper 50s, lower 50s, lower 50s then that's, I think that's, good. that's a good thing. So to back up a little bit, so we talked about the flounder life cycle and the biology of it. We, we need consecutive or at least two out of every three winters to be, to be cold. That would ensure that 
you have new fish coming in into the fishery, new, new successful year classes that, that we then can go after and, and target. So Parks and Wildlife Commission received a briefing from Coastal Fisheries, and they discussed, I have in front of you guys some of the slides. Uh, well, actually, this is more than what the commission received, but uh, Coastal Fisheries presented with Parks and Wildlife with some of these slides. So those that are listening, I apologize. We'll, we'll, we'll put some of this stuff up on the CCA Texas website, and then, of course, there will be opportunities to see all of this this winter when Parks and Wildlife goes out to scoping to talk to the, pub the public about this. All right, so we're just going to run through these. The, the, the first one that we're going to discuss is the, the, the bag seines. So Parks and Wildlife every month goes out and pulls bag seines along the shoreline. From January to March, when they're pulling those bag seines, that's when your, your flounder fingerlings, your small flounder, are going to show up in those bag seines. Those are the guys that are recruiting into the bay systems. So if you look uh, back to the 1980s and early 90s, we, the, they would catch about, on average, just looking at this, somewhere around 10 fish per hectare um, would be how many flounder are coming up in their bag seines. Since the 2000s, that number has, has probably on average dipped below five with the occasional uptick. So if you look at those spikes in recruitment from 2004 all the way through 2019, any of those spikes that you see were either after a cold year or after a, ch a management change. So we had a spike in recruitment in, in 2000, um, I think it's six. We, wasn't it, I think it was 05, we had a really cold winter. We got all that snow, at least down on the coast. Mm -hmm. Had a spike in recruitment the, the next year. Then we did have a management change in 2009. In 2010, we had a spike in recruitment. We had another management change in 14. In 2015, we had a spike in recruitment. And then we had a spike in recruitment in 2018, and that was after that cold. We almost had a catastrophic freeze at the end of 2017, early 2018. It was just a few degrees and, or a few hours at, at the temperatures that we had from being a devastating freeze. It fell short of being devastating. It turned out to be a really good thing for flounder recruitment. So we had a spike that spring of, um, of to early 2018. Now last spring, spring of 2019, you see the numbers start to go back down again. And that's because of the not cold enough winter that, that we just experienced last year. So that's the bag seine recruitment. Any, like I said, any significant spikes in recruitment in the last roughly 20 years have been as a result of a cold winter or a management change. And by management change, you're talking about the lowering of the limits. Lowering of the limits and the um, gigging ban in November and the, the bag reduction from 5 to 2 from November to December 15th. Yes. So the next slide that uh, we, we could talk about are, are bay trawls. And this is uh, like a shrimp trawl they pull across the bay system, but in it they, they also pick up juvenile flounder. So flounder that are, some of them are probably legal size, but a lot of them are not. They're before they hit that 14-inch mark. And look at when you look at this one, you, you see the line certainly trending downward since 1982. But we saw a peak this year in 2019. Those are the same fish that were peaking in the bag seines the year before. So you can see these fish move as they transition through the fishery. You can see them showing up in Parks and Wildlife's data. I'm going to skip forward to gillnets. Gillnets show 
the same thing. Now, they, they pull gill nets in the spring and the fall. For 10 weeks in the spring and 10 weeks in the fall, they pull gill nets. It's better really to look at the spring data because that's before the for any trout, redfish, whatever. But it's better to look at the spring data because that's before everybody starts fishing. Most people don't don't fish in the in the winter, um, except for the crazy ones like Wayne. Most people fish in the summer and in the in the autumn. But so if you look at the spring gillnet data, uh, that line trends down. But again, in 2019, you see that going up and again that's the 2018 year class show. the last two charts we looked at they almost mirror each other this one doesn't do that so will this gill net will it not catch the smaller fish it doesn't catch the smaller fish and and to be fair it also doesn't do a great job of catching flounder period it they don't move they don't move they don't they don't and they don't get entangled in the net quite as much as the other as the other fish if you look at the catch rates of flounder on this graph they're all let you know on average less than 0.1 fish per hour but if you look at that for redfish and trout and the numbers are it's on a different scale almost so um it's it's really this this shows a a decline but it's not as drastic as as what you see in the recruitment and and in the bay trawl the recruitment in the back sains and the juveniles in the bay trawl are probably a little bit better indicators of of what's going on so okay so we talked about those fish coming into the fishery we talked about temperature and again you see as the temperatures are warmer recruitment declines as temperatures are colder recruitment comes up um, that's demonstrated in uh, the bay trawls and what they're seeing in the bay trawls as opposed to winter january water temperatures it's more uh, prevalent on the lower coast than it is than it is the upper coast you certainly see some dramatic uh, changes going on more on the lower coast than the other coast and i think that's where just a reflection of water depth and it's it's warmer down there than it is probably you know up certainly up here in galveston region across all months from 1977 to today across all months coastal fisheries has been uh, monitoring water temperatures when they go out and they, they do their sampling they're recording dissolved oxygen salinity water temperatures so we have a pretty good data set 40 years of, of data and water temperatures on average have been cr increasing every month of the year in our base systems you can call it what you want but it's happening so we have to be cognizant of that now the next graph I'm showing is annual gill net catch per unit effort by age class so these they'll catch fish they'll remove the otoliths and then the otoliths are analyzed to determine the age of the fish so if you look at this graph we have age one to five and remember it, I, I mentioned it takes flounder lives about seven years it takes about two years for them to become sexually mature and so anytime before that really the gill net's not picking them up because they're not big enough so the gillnet's catching your larger fish look at the lines for age one and two so for those listening and can't view this age one fish in 1982 or let's go to 1984 age one fish were being caught at a rate of 0.4 per hour age one fish today are being caught at a rate of um, um i'm sorry let me back up Age one fish in 1984 caught at 
0.04 per hour. H1 fish caught today are at 0.01 per hour. This the line for H1 and 2 fish is is decreasing dramatically while the lines for H3, H4, H5 fish are staying relatively static. So it tells you that we are prosecuting our younger fish at a much higher rate than we are older fish, which is not rocket science. We have more younger fish than we do older fish, but we're not sustaining the populations of younger fish like we used to. So we're putting the same amount of pressure on those younger fish, but there's not as much of them out there. So that's pretty ear-opening to listen to. Um, yeah, it is. Eye-opening to see, ear-opening to listen to. So, You know, I've seen this year, though, from all the way up and down the coast to our area, um, there seem to be more fish being caught throughout the year, than, especially than there were last year. I don't know. And it made, kind of made me think maybe – they were starting to see a little bit of a turnaround, but the looking at the data that you're showing on the graphs, it doesn't reflect what I've been seeing personally from all the people that I know that fish. I'm, I'm a waymaster and I work a lot of tournaments, and I'm the people that are coming in that are fishing the tournaments are catching flounder. No, I think it reflects exactly what you're seeing. Think about it. So we had this conversation last year. How, how many keepers were you catching last year, Wayne? Not even one in ten. Not even one in ten. Now those fish are big enough to keep, mm-hmm. and they have been there, um, since, you know, um, probably about two months after you stopped fishing, they started entering entering that 14-inch slot. They started getting big enough to, for people to f- catch. Now, that successful recruitment I had in 18 has everybody thinking that the flounder fishery is back, and the fishing's great. And it is, but that's a one-year class. We're fishing off of one successful year class. So that's the message that we want people to take home from this is while fishing is good right now, we're going to realize, and if we don't get consecutive cold winters in two or three years, that we're back in the toilet. So the, kind of the, when we'll just get to it, the point of all this is to talk about doing more to protect those successful year classes. So Parks and Wildlife is going to go out to scoping maybe late december probably early january and the scoping is just where they let the public know hey guys we're seeing a problem we would like your input into this process so you and i and anyone else can go to a scoping meeting uh, that they're going to have along the coast at at dates and places to be determined but we can go there and say we've been seeing fish everywhere or yeah we realize there's a problem please do something you know everyone can have their input at that point in time and then they'll go back to the commission in late January and present their um, discussions and conversations they've had with the public. They'll present that to the commission, and they'll ask for uh, some guidance from the commission to develop some proposals. And then those proposals would be published, and then it goes into an official public comment process. And that's where you go to a meeting and you have like one minute or three minutes to get up and speak your mind about whatever those proposals are. Then in March, the commission meets again and they can decide to vote in March on any regulation changes or they can say, well, we need more information. Why don't you come back to us in in June? So they'll have another opportunity to adopt in June. And at the latest, they'll, they would have to adopt in August to get them published in time for the September 1st. So that's kind of the process. And that's what's going to sort of take place. The conversations that need to be had now are what 
what you guys think as anglers would be um, viable solutions to protect those year classes of fish that are successful. What do we what do we do to protect this fishery from um, over harvest and and fishing pressure? Have any ideas? Probably wouldn't be very popular. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> well, no idea is going to be popular. That's, that's the sad reality. We're at five fish during the most of the year and two fish. Uh, this is hook and line. Five fish most of the year and then two fish for six six weeks out of the year. We have a gigging ban in place and we have, um, you know, a pretty restrictive regulations from, you know, when, in comparison to, say, you know, other fisheries that we have in Texas. I jotted a few ideas down, so I'll just get your thoughts on them. Well, real quick, before I do that, the question that some people might have listening, or you guys, are, well, what's the commercial impact? I think that the, the true answer is that we probably don't know. We know what the landings are. We know what's being reported. We have no idea what's not being reported. And that's, I think that is um, one of the things that... Uh, you know, can be discussed, but you just you just look at what's reported. The landings vary from 2008 to 2017 are the numbers that I have. They're hovering around 50,000 pounds per year is what's being reported. Harvest. Harvest, 50,000 pounds per year going, on average. And commercial. That's commercial. I think I have a slide for it for you guys to see. So in the, in the late 80s, they were – Anywhere from 400,000 pounds to the lowest one in the late 80s, early 90s is about 150,000 pounds. Those landings have dramatically decreased because that, that's of not a drastic that many, change. That's right a drastic there. change, but they've also we've also enacted thin fish buyback licenses. So some people have got out, gotten out of the fishery. Their bag limits have been reduced. It used to be no bag limit to to 90 fish to 60 fish and now they're at 30 fish so their bag limits have been reduced so that's reflective in this as well but since um t- uh, 2007 they they've really been not harvesting or not reporting at least uh, that many fish landed 2017 their landings were at 39,000 pounds and in 2018 on this graph they look to be somewhere probably around 20,000 pounds well has demand changed a good question i don't know the answer i don't know if 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 fish from other markets are entering into the texas fishery well in the last 30 40 years farming has become extremely well there's not any uh farms in the u.s that are putting a lot of product in the market there might be one in north carolina i don't think there's i don't think they are i was really including imported farmed fish too oh uh, could be that could hurt the demand it, there could be there could be some from um Certainly Asia is successful with the Japanese flounder. There may be some coming over. But I know that at HEB here in Lake Jackson, I saw some um, that weren't southern flounder. I think they were summer flounder. So they would have been from North Carolina, Virginia. There's some fish from the east coast that come over here. Um, But in other parts of the country, there's successful uh, commercial fisheries for flounder. Use nets and trammel nets and pound nets and all these things to, to catch their flounder um but other states have had to take some pretty drastic changes north carolina closed their recreational fishery this 
past August, and they're not opening it again till next summer. Really? Closing it for almost a whole year. And they closed the commercial fishery for several weeks, and then it opened back up. You know, that makes me think of something. We're, we're talking about the temperature that it has to maintain here to keep eggs viable. Mm-hmm. Does that, that can't change once you get up on the northeast coast, can it? Well, certainly. I mean, I mean their water temperature is going to be cooler than ours is. It's going to be cooler than ours, but that doesn't mean to say that they don't, they're not having warm winters warm enough to be outside of the tolerance of those, those larvae. Do the tolerances vary when you get up in that colder temperature? That's a good question. And I think, I think there is some research to suggest that flounder along the Gulf Coast have their window is a little bit different than the ones that off of, say, North Carolina and South Carolina. So they still have that window of tolerance. It's just probably it's in a different spot on the thermometer, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember reading some papers that when looking at the uh, publication from UTMSI, they referenced um, work done by uh, NC State, Wade Watanabe and Harry Daniels out of NC State. And you can look, look up their larvae culture research that they've done with flounder and um, it'll have the range of that, that range that those flounder on the east coast have so it's a good question though so we talked about commercial landings and, we, and so now what do we do the they're all unpopular but i wrote some down and i think the biggest thing that i think shane thinks needs to happen is increase in that uh, minimal size i think you need to give the females an extra year to contribute to the spawning biomass and this was pointed out to one of my uh, by one of my uh, co-workers and i never put a whole lot of thought into it since he told me now i think about it all the time how much meat do you get off of the bottom side of a 14 inch flounder not much not enough to clean it no. there you go so in my mind it's a little bit of a waste when you can let that fish spawn another year stay in the fishery for another year when you harvest it at whatever, 16 inches, 17 inches, you've got. There's a substantial, substantial increase in the meat that you get harvested on. Yeah. On that little, on that lo- a two inch fish. Yeah. I mean, you're doubling almost the, the flay production. Yeah. And when we, when you look at that graph that we showed at the age classes that are being, uh, that are reflected in the gillnet data, you would relieve the pressure on those year one and year two fish, let them get to year three. So you would spread that, that pressure out a little more across all year classes than just hammering the young ones. Now, I could see someone arguing the counter to that. It's like, well, you're just going to be taking all the big fish out of the fishery now and and harvesting the ones with the most eggs. But you're giving those younger fish a chance to develop and that's right. grow That's right. You're going to gonna have more fish in the fishery. So um, that's the biggest one for me, I think, is increasing increasing that, that biomass. A 17-inch fish is going to be a 2-year-old fish, guaranteed. At least two, could be three. So you give them more another year to spawn. One, another. I don't know if that one would be extremely unpopular. I think out of all of them, that one might be the most accepted. I think so too. That, that people I, could I swallow. It, I could agree with it. Yeah. And because males don't always come back at 14 inches, you might catch a male or or two. You know, out of your five. Males do get to 14, 15 inches. The average is 10 to 14 inches. So when males migrate, they don't all come back. Most of them don't. Most of them stay offshore. So you would be um, taking pressure off of those males. So if we are male-limited offshore, 
um, you're going to have a lot of males, save a lot of males out there to fertilize the eggs. That's something I wasn't aware of, that they didn't return. I never yeah. heard that either. Yeah, they don't all come back. There's a lot of, there's quite a bit of literature out there now to suggest that they stay, they stay offshore. Um, the females certainly come back. We see that. So that's another idea. What about a spring closure? Either an ex expansion of the current closure and or a spring closure. When they leave, they all leave kind of in a pretty big pulse. When they come back, it's more of a trickle, but they still come back, and you're still, at, at least in passes in these, these funnels, um, you're, it's a bottleneck for them and makes them easy to, to catch and prosecute, whether that be hook and line or, or a gig. But there's the idea of perhaps having some sort of spring protection for when they come back into the base systems. I know I've heard that they start to trickle back in at the end of January mm -hmm. and they'll slowly start to, to return about that time. Me personally as an angler, I've always found that I've had my, my best catches for the spring in and around Good Friday and Easter. Really? Which is a lot later in the year. Yeah, that is. And that's fishing mostly in like the jetty channel and surf side and areas like that where we're directly the pathway of where they're returning. Yeah. So that's another one. I don't I don't know if, if that one will, would be would be discussed in scoping or not, but this is another one I jot it down. So the the big one is a some form of of extension of the gigging ban or a gigging ban all out, which would not be popular at all. But I think people need to recognize recreational anglers need to recognize that as recreational anglers. Gigging has become way more popular than it used to be. I don't know the numbers on this, but I just want th people to think of this in their heads. 20 years ago, how many gigging guides were out there? How many do you know of off the top of your head? I can't think of many. I can think of a couple, but I can't think of many. long time ago, you, I've never really heard of any guide, gigging guides. Where now, I probably know three or four just in this area. It is, it, and, and there's, there's, we, we, we had a couple of guys on last year that there's, there's quite a number of folks that have commercial licenses and they're recreational gigging guides. So they're, they're, they have the boat, they have the equipment. Why not take recreational angles out to enjoy the resource? But we need to realize that we as rec anglers are contributing we're not the problem the temperature is the problem that's the issue the but, population but we with what we have left we need to realize that we have the ability to stop the bleeding and that i think has to be may not be the solution but it has to be part of the conversation is recognition that the the um, the gig industry has an impact on the resource and that that's one way to tackle this problem. I think it's going to take a suite of options and that just might be one of them that's part of the conversation. The commercial harvest is, in in my opinion, one of the biggest detriments to the population. I mean, if they're taking 30 a night um, in comparison to what the normal recreational person can take, <clears throat> 30 a night is a lot, of, a lot of flounder being harvested. If you look at landings in 2008 before they had the gigging, gigging before we had the, gig, the gigging ban, to landings in 2018 the commercial harvest has they're no longer allowed to harvest in the fall and they don't harvest as much in the fall as they used to because of the november and part of december closure they've shifted that harvest to april and may 
you can look at data that Parks and Wildlife has, and they've shifted their pressure on the fishery to largely April and, and May. We as recreational anglers, we have uh, we've done the opposite. We've shifted to harvest in November. Hook and line, hook and line guys are harvesting way more fish in November than we've than we've done. Um, even, in, with two day limit? Past. even with a two-day limit. Even with a two-man limit. November of 2008, the percent of landings by month in November, we were at 20% of our landings for the year came in November. Now, in 2018, almost 40% of our landings are, are happening in, in November. So we've seen a 20% increase in November landings from 2008 to 2018. So we've we've uh, put, started to put a lot of pressure on this fish in in, in November. Hook and line guys. Um, the average commercial trip lands forty pounds of, of fish per per trip. To your point, Kevin. Some of the, I think some of the trips have uh, multiple licenses on board because some of the landings are at uh, one hundred ninety pounds or more. So I don't. They must have several license holder on the board on the boat at one time. An average flounder is about two pounds that they that they harvest sixteen inch fish, so um, they got to have multiple licenses that are either that or they're way over way over harvesting, or both. Um, but yeah, the average trip commercial trip brings in forty pounds of flounder. So that's uh, that's going to be part of the conversation. We we as rec anglers recognize that we have a role to play. But it, there's going to have to be pain across the board, and commercial guys are going to have to feel it just as much as we do. The commercial market, I mean, that's one thing you've always – anytime somebody goes to a restaurant, they're looking for a nice flounder meal or something. It's one of the more popular um, fish to eat. It is. It's great flesh. It's it's a wonderful fish. And the, um, unfortunately, there's just not enough remaining with the environmental conditions we have now to – to say that the population is sustainable because it's not you look at all the trend lines in front of you guys right now for the sampling that parks and wildlife does in our bay and they're going the wrong direction every one of them point the wrong direction has there been discussion to make of the flounder a game fish so this interesting question parks and wildlife has the ability with their current authority to do anything that a game fish status would do they can regulate means and method of take so they could they could ban gigging which is wouldn't making it a game fish make it illegal to game it would make it illegal to sell as food but 92 percent of commercial flounder are gigged 92 percent of the fish that enter the market are gigged some are caught in shrimp trawls some are very few are hook and line some are trout line but most are gigged overwhelming majority so if you banned um, the gigging of fish for for say you just did it for commercials you would almost make that de facto game fish status it wouldn't be truly game fish status that requires legislative action i know that i've had several conversations with people that that think that it should be declared a game fish and which would make gigging illegal right Um, right it'd be hook and line only at that point in time and it would be uh, illegal to sell. And, and I know that's not going to be a popular 
for I mean I've got friends that are both um, gigging guides and also in the recreational mar- um, business. Cap Mark's a friend of mine. Yeah, and that, that's that's something that would have affect his business. Yeah, certainly. So here's my other option that I think needs to be discussed and and seriously considered is establish a threshold catch rate for your bag saints for your recruitment every for say a three-year time period and if you don't reach that level two out of those any three-year time period then you do what we just talked about you enact a ban on the commercial sale or the gigging of flounder until that recruitment has come back up to a sustainable level where you can prosecute the fishery in that manner so that i don't know you know parks and wildlife would have to set what that threshold is but use the data as your criteria for establishing some threshold to get the numbers back up to where they're sustainable and then we can go back to um, something that's very much a part of uh, folks culture uh in in texas now it's different than what it used to be when i did this it was dad and my uncle who was an extension agent he had access to landowner property we would drive the suburban to cox bay through four miles of ranch back roads we'd get out and we'd get our lanterns and our homemade sticks and we'd walk the muddy shorelines for a mile and a half to scrape up three flounder it's not that way anymore how many miles can a gig boat cover in the night now how untold amounts and they they can go back and use their gps and they can track exactly where they've they've got their spots where they know the fish are and have been and it's a different game than it used to be it's a different game when when we refer to the culture of gigging it's not in, in people's mind it's not actually what's happening which is boats with these fancy fancy setups with all these led lights and um gps and motors and garmin and what i mean just go on and on it's amazing the amount of uh investment people have put in their flounder boats and we're damn good at at harvesting the fish that way so that's my uh i guess compromise to eliminating the, the gigging is establish a threshold to say when and when you can and can't do it and I think the other part of the conversation is will be another reduction in bag limit. Two year round or three year round or one fish year round. I don't know what you know that number should be or needs to be, but that's gonna be another component to it. So Wayne, for you, as a one of the most avid flounder fishermen I know, at what point in time does it stop being worth it for you to come down to the Texas coast for two months out of the year? And fish for flounder. Well, my main reason for coming is to work with the hatchery. But if you took that out of the picture, and I was just coming down here to catch flesh to eat, uh, you know, two a day, that's you got to stay a while to justify the trip. And you get up in the morning to go fishing, and you've, you've limited out before sunup. What do you do the rest of the day? You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing, too, that I've had conversations with quite a few people is once something is taken away, you never get it back. Um, you know, I hear so, that time and time again, but just at this last meeting, they increased the – I can't remember what lake it was on, but they've increased the, – I think it was uh, Texarkana uh, on the Red River. They increased uh, the bag limit for one of the species of catfish. 
because hmm. they want to mirror uh, um, regulations with Oklahoma, so it's not confusing where you are on the lake. But they they jumped it up substantially. Um, so, well, that's one out of many. Case I, in point: the redfish um, reduction to three, um, mm-hmm. and the there's a lot of people that say that the red redfish population isn't near as dire as what it used to be. It's not, um, and they're they thinking it should be raised back up. It probably could be. But Parks and Wildlife, when people mention that, the Parks and Wildlife comes back, they'll, they'll say, they'll tell you at that meeting. I can't remember what the years were, but twice before they've scoped that idea and it got shot down by the public. Hmm. They can do it again. They'll do it any time, I think, if there's enough um, outcry for them to do it. And this might push them over. This might this well, might push them to do that. If you take away, you know, folks' ability to fish flounder, then you know give more redfish well another thing too is just recently we had the reduction on the upper coast here of the speckled trout from 10 to 5 yeah yeah and that's one more thing that's being cut and cut and cut yeah i know we've got a lot more fresh fishing pressure than what we ever used to years and years ago because more population of people here on the coast that are just everybody seems to be picking up a rod and reel these days there's a lot more pressure on the fish and that's another thing that's a contributing factor to the populations for sure for sure. We have more anglers out there on the water than we ever have. Um, flounder's third most popular fish, and unfortunately for that, for those, for the flounder, they're also one of the most um, finicky fish that we have because of this winter water temperature issue with the larvae. Um, so that's what I wanted to discuss. I can't believe I rambled on, so it's been longer than I thought this would go. Do you guys have any, any thoughts, closing thoughts on what we've discussed i'm not sure where where we need to start but i i can see something's going to have to be done and like you say we're, we're all going to have to feel the pain yeah, yeah. I, I pretty much agree that um something does need to change i know it's not going to be popular any whatever the decisions are made but um we have to protect the resource so when when this goes out to scoping for those those listening just just go over the timeline one more time scoping will be dates to be announced but likely late december early january those are not official proposals at that time and that'll be the proposed changes that'll be a conversation kind of like what we've had today where parks and wildlife will present the data and just talk about options with the public i want to hear from you guys on what you think about what i just presented to you that's what those meetings would be official changes would be proposed possibly in late January at that commission meeting. And if they don't get proposed then, they get proposed in March. So you'd either have a vote in March or a vote in June, depending on when the official proposals come out. And there would be um, the whatever rules are passed, whatever those proposals are, and they might get modified. But when they get passed, that would be effective September 1st. Is that the end of the fiscal year for... Yeah, then that's when, you know, the new hunting license and season uh, kicks in. So they try to get any rule changes they try to get done prior to uh, that August meeting so they have enough time to put it in the outdoor annual and get them published for that September 1st date. So that's kind of the timeline that we're looking at. Uh, It's going to move fast. It's going to be heated for sure. But I hope that this conversation helps people kind of go into those meetings with a little bit of information and a little bit of perspective uh, so they know what's going on. The data that I'm looking at is definitely alarming. 
um, based on what it's what I'm seeing the populations are doing. And, it, I mean, if it's getting that drastic, we have to do something to protect it. I agree. I agree. And I, I appreciate you guys hearing me out and contributing to, the, to this conversation. And as it moves along, uh, either online or at one of those meetings, because uh, both of you, I respect both of you very much, I think your opinions matters a lot, and I hope that you all uh, play a part through that public comment process or uh, at those at those public meetings attend or do whatever you can to speak from experience and from what you're seeing thanks guys thank, thank you sir. Appreciate thank you appreciate you always a pleasure